Hello, this is Kelly Taylor. I'm your host for Radio Eyes Diary of Science and Nature. I'll be reading a variety of articles that are selected for the greatest interest. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Well, today we have an article from Popular Science. In their Ask Us Anything uh, section, the headline is, Why Haven't We Gotten Rid of Lead? Written by Amal Ahmed. And this is from their summer 2022 edition. In the 1920s, the National Lead Company released a kid's coloring book to promote its array of vibrant metal-filled paints. On the cover, its smiling Dutch boy mascot sits atop a headless lead horse with a can of the brand's signature white varnish. This was a common sight in 20th century America when lead could be found everywhere, in pipes bringing once clean water to cities and towns, in paints that produced brighter colors and dried faster, in gas to help the fuel combust more evenly in car engines, in plastic toys to make them more flexible and resistant to heat. Even after physicians publicized the harms it posed to workers and children during the Industrial Revolution, the heavy metal was considered a versatile material. The U.S. didn't clamp down on its use until uh, the 1970s, allowing decades' worth of toxins to build up in the environment, in the walls of homes, and overwhelmingly in marginalized neighborhoods. Today, the country is faced with the gargantuan task of cleaning up paint, pipes, acid batteries, and other common sources of the contaminant site by site. The lead is a naturally occurring element. The durability that made it appealing to manufacturers also makes it dangerous to most living creatures. Once it's inhaled or ingested into the bloodstream and deposited into cells and tissues, it blocks beneficial enzymes and minerals like zinc and calcium from binding with proteins throughout the body. This, in turn, can disrupt kidney and brain function, cause infertility, and even prevent the creation of oxygen-carrying hemoglobin. Most medical experts agree that there's no safe level of lead exposure for kids in particular because the metal keeps their nervous systems from fully developing. It's also bioaccumulative, meaning it builds up over time as the body has no mechanism for ridding itself of the toxin. It's been found in teeth, bones, and other tissues even decades after exposure. Time has shown that the consequences of stashing the element internally can be grave and toxic. In a 2018 study in The Lancet Public Health, medical researchers concluded that lead-based products are still responsible for more than 400,000 deaths every year in the United States. In 2022, Sociologists and neuroscientists estimated in the journal PNAS that 90% of Americans born between 1951 and 1980 accrued alarming amounts of the heavy metal in their blood during childhood. The authors correlated those heightened levels with loss of cognitive skills and a significant dip in average adult IQ across millions of individuals.
This population level analysis helped account for mitigating factors that typically make intelligence scores unreliable and biased. Quote, exposures appear to have lifespan consequences, says Matt Hauer, an assistant professor at Florida State University. The burden of this and that legacy of exposures is going to be with us for decades to come, end quote. In light of the many risks to people of all ages, the Environmental Protection Agency has set the lead standard at 15 parts per billion molecules in water and 0.15 micrograms per cubic meter of air. Other countries have set the legal limit even lower. Canada's, for example, holds at five parts per billion in water. Those standards are relatively new. In the United States, lead wasn't banned in paint until 1978, new water pipes until 1986, or gasoline until 1996. Countries continue to use the material in manufacturing, while recycled products can dump it back into the supply chain. It's also highly persistent in the environment as it fails to react with other common elements and typically takes years to break down. Quote, lead is malleable, but it doesn't break and corrode easily, says Bawani Venkaturaman, a chemistry professor at the New School in New York City. It is, however, susceptible to chemical compounds called oxidizing agents that pull it out, contaminating water or air. That is what makes lead a legacy polluter. In the 19th and 20th centuries, when modern plumbing was first taking shape, leaky wooden and clay pipes had caused outbreaks of waterborne illnesses like cholera. Those public health concerns led to the installation of thousands of miles of metal pipes all over the U.S., Decades later, cities with aging infrastructure like Flint, Michigan, and Newark, New Jersey, have lead pervading their drinking sources. Minimizing exposure requires a very careful balancing act, Vinkateraman says. Small changes in the acidity or mineral content of water can cause undetected contamination over time. Often, the only recourse is to swap out the entire network with new copper piping an expensive, laborious process that Flint and Newark are now neck deep in. Depending on the scale of the problem, it can take anywhere from $20 to $1,000 per household to filter lead out of tap water, and it costs billions of dollars to remove and replace pipes nationwide. At the tail end of 2021, Congress allocated $15 billion through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law for purging lead plumbing in schools, homes, playgrounds, and other buildings, along with additional money to mitigate tainted paint and other fixtures. The funding comes with a promised focus on erasing inequalities. Up to $3 billion will be made available to tribal governments, as public health experts have historically failed to quantify lead exposure rates in indigenous communities. Some advocates say that the bill is long overdue, even as evidence piled up in the early 1900s that most quantities of lead were noxious, the industry mounted successful campaigns to convince policymakers not to ban their products and consumers to keep buying them. Companies then attempted to shift the blame for the ill effects of their goods onto the public, 
particularly low-income households and people of color. Quote, the problem of lead poisoning in children will be with us for as long as there are slums, one insider said at a lead association conference in 1957, after blaming black and Puerto Rican families who supposedly chose to live there. But that was far from the truth. Cities permitted industries and developers to set up sites that made or recycled lead in low-income communities of color, or the neighborhoods were knowingly built around such facilities. In the 1950s, Dallas, Texas put a low-income housing complex just a few miles away from a lead smelter that had been in operation for 20 years and would continue to pump pollution into the community for several more decades. Decades of segregation and long-delayed remediation mean that black and poor Americans continue to face more exposure to sources of lead poisoning than white affluent residents. Overall, humans have made significant strides to keep the risky substance out of homes and the environment. Between 1976 and 1980, American youth ages 1 to 5 had a median blood lead level of 15 micrograms per deciliter. By 2016, national studies showed the level had fallen by more than 95% to less than 1 microgram. There's also nearly 98% less lead in the Earth's atmosphere today than in 1980, a testament to cleaner fuels and better metal processing. But the world still has a long way to go before everyone is protected. The EPA has identified dozens of Superfund sites, many in urban areas, that need to be purged of the heavy metal. Globally, lead manufacturing and recycling are now concentrated in developing nations where the levels recorded in children's blood remain dangerously high. If you think there's no safe amount of exposure, Vinka Terraman says, then there should be no lead anywhere, end quote. And now let's turn to Scientific American. This article headlines, Turning the Tide, Discoveries Keep Revising Our Long-Held Views of Life, written by Timothy Shank. For more than 50 years, deep-sea exploration has been a continuous fount of discoveries that change how we think about life in the ocean, on dry land, and even about our planet. Consider the following three events. On October 16, 1968, a cable tethering the submersible, submersible Alvin to a research ship located 100 miles off Nantucket broke. A sub, the sub, the Alvin sub, sank to the seafloor more than 5,000 feet below. The crew of three escaped safely. Nearly a year later, when a team brought Alvin back to the surface, the biggest surprise was that the crew's lunch, bologna sandwiches and apples in a plastic box, was strikingly well-preserved. Bacteriological and biochemical assays proved it. Someone even took a bite. Subsequent experiments in the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution Laboratory, where I'm writing this article, found that rates of microbial degradation in the retrieved samples were 10 to 100 times slower than expected. This discovery and others led to the conclusion that metabolic and growth rates among deep-sea organisms were much slower than those of comparable species at the ocean's surface. In 1977, scientists diving in the restored Alvin 
made another historic discovery, the first in-person observations of life around hot hydrothermal vents rising from the seafloor. This sighting overturned the long-held view that our entire planetary food web was built on photosynthesis, using sunlight's energy to convert carbon dioxide and water into complex carbohydrates and oxygen. The hydrothermal organisms and the entire ecosystem thrived in pure darkness, converting chemicals in the vent fluid into life-sustaining compounds through a process we now call chemosynthesis. If that revelation wasn't surprising enough, an expedition I was part of in 1993 exposed an earlier mistaken belief. We hadn't discovered a significant hydrothermal vent ecosystem on the East Pacific rise. We had discovered a significant hydrothermal vent on the East Pacific. The system had been destroyed by a seafloor eruption just a few years earlier, yet it had already been bountifully recolonized. A bologna sandwich might decay so slowly in the deep that you could eat it a year later, but it turned out that biological processes in the deep sea could be extremely fast as well. Each new ocean discovery that disrupts old dogma reinforces a much larger truth. The ocean is far more complex and much more intertwined with our own lives than we ever imagined. For much of the 20th century, for example, scientists maintained that the deep ocean was a harsh, monotonous place of perpetual darkness, frigid temperatures, limited food, and extreme pressure, conditions that should make complex forms of life impossible. But new tools for observing, sensing, and sampling the deep ocean, such as increasingly sophisticated underwater vehicles with high-definition camera systems, have demonstrated that biodiversity in the darkest depths may rival that of rainforests and tropical coral reefs. These missions have further revealed that the depths are far from uniform. Like kangaroo habitat in Australia and tiger lands in Asia, they are home to evolutionarily distinct biogeographic regions. We are beginning to appreciate how connected these realms are to our own. The rapid three-dimensional change of conditions such as temperature, salinity, and oxygen concentration in the deep ocean and the currents and eddies that establish the boundaries of these provinces are expected to fundamentally change as the effects of human activity reach ever farther below the surface. Already, lobsters are moving to deeper, colder waters and molting at different times of the year. Commercially important ground fish such as cod and haddock are migrating poleward in search of more suitable habitat. We are seeing that the ocean's biogeographic boundaries are neither immutable nor beyond the imprint of humans. In studies, more than half of sampled hadal organisms, those living in the deepest parts of the ocean, beyond 20,000 feet, had plastics in their gut, PCBs, which were banned in the U.S. in 1979 and phased out internationally as part of the Stockholm Convention beginning in 2001, are also common in tissues of animals from the extreme bottoms of the sea. We're also starting to learn that life in the deep might have things to teach us. Deep sea fish produce biomolecules called osmolites that permit cellular functions, such as the precise folding and unfolding of proteins, to proceed unimpeded by crushing water column pressures 
exceeding 15,000 pounds per square inch. Medical researchers have determined that some of these molecules could help treat Alzheimer's disease, which is characterized by misfolded proteins. In addition, decoding the genes that govern traits we see in deep sea animals, such as those that stave off errors in DNA replication, transcription and translation, might be used in therapies for cancer and other afflictions. The greatest paradigm that ocean exploration may tear down is that Earth represents the sole example of life in the universe. Life might have existed on Mars when it hosted liquid water, and the fact that Earth and Mars have shared ejected material in the past means we could have exchanged the building blocks of life. But the discovery of chemosynthetic life on Earth and the more recent finding of perhaps 13 liquid water oceans underneath the icy shells of moons such as Jupiter's Europa and Saturn's Enceladus, places that may have been too distant to have shared life-bearing material with Earth in the past, raise the possibility of a second, independent genesis of life. And if life can form twice in one solar system, then it could be anywhere we look in the heavens. Our next article comes from a publication called Grist, written by Zoya Tierstein, July 20th, and the headline is, Extreme rainfall will be worse and more frequent than we thought, according to new studies. Joshua Studholm was finishing his doctoral program in physics at Lomonsov, Moscow State University, when his thesis advisor told him a story about Queen Victoria, the monarch who ruled the British Empire for the better part of the 19th century. The queen was walking the grounds at one of her palaces, accompanied by a science advisor, when she noticed that it was raining heavily in one corner of her garden, but not at all in another corner. She wondered why that was. Ever since then, imperial meteorologists have been trying to figure out why extreme rainfall can vary so much, said Studholm, who is now an academic at Yale University. It's only really now that we're getting the technology to answer that question, end quote. Earlier this month, Studholm and three colleagues at Yale published a study that seeks to fine-tune our understanding of extreme rainfall, now and in the future. They and other researchers suspect that the trick to accurately pinpointing the magnitude and frequency of extreme rainfall doesn't just come down to measuring and tracking rain, it also hinges on the way researchers model climate change. Climate scientists have long known that global warming increases rainfall, since a hotter atmosphere holds more water vapor. But when the remnants of Hurricane Ida swept into the Northeast in the summer of 2021, they brought the kind of catastrophic rain event experts have predicted would typically occur later this century. Studholm's study sought to investigate why Ida and the many other record-breaking rain events that occurred last year across the globe in Europe, China, and other places, seemed to happen ahead of schedule. The question that guided his study wasn't all that different from Queen Victoria's query to her science advisor. Why is it raining where it's raining, and why is it raining so hard in certain places? Luckily, in the 21st century, we have the know-how. Decades of precipitation data and many different types of climate models that can help us predict what the future will look like to start narrowing down the answers to these questions. 
A climate model is a set of mathematical equations that quantify the Earth system processes that occur on land, in the atmosphere, and in the ocean, and the external factors, such as greenhouse gases, that affect them. Scientists around the world use dozens of different kinds of models that can be regional or global, fine-grained or coarse, primitive or advanced. Studholm's study used climate models to predict how much extreme rain the world will get in the future. But unlike previous studies that averaged all of the available climate models in order to figure out how much rain the planet will get in the coming decades, Studholm decided to only use the group of models that predict the climate change will result in an increase in something called precipitation efficiency. How much of a falling raindrop re-evaporates into the atmosphere before it hits Earth's surface. He excluded the models that forecast a decrease since scientific observations over the past two decades indicate that climate change is leading to an increase in precipitation efficiency. Sometimes taking the average is a bad idea, Studholm said. If you were leaving New York and you wanted to go to Mexico and someone in the backseat said, you've got to go south, and then another guy says, you've got to go north, and you split the difference, you end up in Los Angeles, which is not where you wanted to go. By focusing on the group of climate models that most realistically simulate the actual physics of raindrops, Studholm's study found that the average climate model likely underestimates how extreme precipitation will change in response to global warming. It's impossible that there will be a twofold, I'm sorry, it's possible that there will be a twofold increase in the volume of extreme rainfall in the 21st century compared to what previous studies estimate, he said, which would help explain why the globe is already seeing such intense and unprecedented rainstorms. So a very significant increase in how much rainfall the atmosphere dumps out on the land every day at its most extreme, Studholm said. Chad Thackeray, a climate researcher at the University of California, Los Angeles, who was not involved in Studholm's study, said the research was super interesting and useful, that's in quotes, because it identifies relatively small tweaks that climate modelers can make to improve their simulations. In other words, we're getting closer to successfully using climate models to understand how rain works and how climate change is influencing it. Thackeray published his own study in April that looks at a related piece of the rain puzzle, how frequent intense rain will become as climate change accelerates. In order to obtain his results, Thackeray also had to weed through climate models to find the simulations that most accurately showed how warming is already influencing precipitation. He found that extreme rainfall will occur about 30% more often by the end of the century compared to how often it happens right now, under a medium emissions scenario. If humans reduce greenhouse gas emissions to some extent, instead of continuing business as usual. Quote, there's a lot of work that's trying to untangle why climate models developed around the world will give slightly different answers to a question, Thackeray said. There's been a lot of progress in recent decades, but once you get to highly impactful extreme events, that are very rare, we find that there's still significant uncertainty, Studholm 
and Thackeray studies get us a couple of steps closer to clearing up that uncertainty, and they both point to the unfortunate reality that rain is going to get more extreme as the planet warms. Now, an article from Newsweek magazine, Holy Grail blood test can diagnose cancer years before symptoms. Written by Simona Kitanovska and dated July 20th. A blood test that can diagnose any type of cancer years before symptoms appear could be on the horizon. Scientists have discovered a protein released in the early stages of the disease when tumors are more or most curable. It is produced by a gene named KRAS, the most frequent mutation across all tumors, including lung, bowel, and pancreatic. The breakthrough offers hope of a simple screening program for at-risk individuals, such as older or genetically susceptible people. It would be looking for chemical changes in fragments of genetic code that leak from tumors into the bloodstream. Quote, the sooner you detect someone has cancer, the more likely they will be to survive through treatment and surgery, said lead author Dr. Daniel Kim of the University of California, Santa Cruz. Millions of people die from cancer every year around the world, and there is an urgent need to detect, uh, to develop highly sensitive and specific diagnostic tests that enable cancer early detection before it has spread to other parts of the body, end quote. The KRAS gene regulates RNA molecules that translate instructions encoded in our DNA. Lab experiments found cancer-triggering variants wrongly activate others that can be detected in the blood through sequencing or mapping. Kim believes it is a very promising tool for diagnosing cancer in its earliest stages, This could be done through a minimally invasive technique called liquid biopsy rather than traditional tumor tissue surgery. Some tumors shed DNA into the blood a long time before a person would start experiencing symptoms. The researchers introduced mutant KRAS into healthy lung cells in petri dishes, pushing them into a cancerous state. They performed RNA sequencing using several different methods Computer simulations identified prevalent RNA compared to control cells. Additional epigenomic profiling looked at how genes are turned on or off without changes to the DNA sequence itself. Other tests identified which RNAs are packaged into extracellular vesicles and preferentially secreted from cancerous cells affected by mutant KRAS. First author, Roman Regargio, a PhD candidate in Kim's lab, said, We were in an interdisciplinary environment that really encouraged us to think about RNA and cancer in a different way. The researchers plan to confirm the results by analyzing blood samples from lung cancer patients. They hope to develop a test that could detect these RNA signatures as biomarkers for the early diagnosis of lung cancer. Additionally, They anticipate it leading to a framework for developing an RNA liquid biopsy platform for multi-cancer early detection. Well, that'll be all for today's Diary of Science and Nature. Your host has been Kelly Taylor.
And now stay tuned for the Health Corner on Radio Eye.